Does Jesus want you to be happy? Have you asked me this question recently and I kind of stumbled over it? Jesus wants me to be happy, right? And I said, ah, yeah. It challenges the word happy. Happy has a lot of baggage. Happy has expectations. Happy means nothing's bad ever. Does Jesus want you to be happy about trafficking children for a sex slave trade through the United States of America? Should we be happy? He says, no. We're not supposed to be happy about evil ever. And because we live in this evil world, waiting for our Lord to return, knowing in his goodness, there's going to be a limitation on happiness. That said, we're working with the New King James here now. The word happy shows out in the New King James a lot in place of the word blessed because it didn't used to mean happy like as in, you know, I'm never sad. Instead, it meant knowing that I've got the good that is the good. So to be happy is to know who you are, really. Uh, To be content, maybe, is the way we would say it now. But so again, the question, does Jesus want you to be happy? Well, the answer is maybe. Depends on what you're asking about. But, But I can tell you a certainty that's much better than that. And that certainty is that Jesus loves life. Jesus loves all life. Jesus loves life so much, he made life. And he loves life so much, he became part of our life, even though there are thorns and thistles. He loves life so much, he became part of our life because he loves your life so much, he wanted to save it for you. So put that in the kind of ponder mark, right? Does Jesus want me to be happy? If your answer, my answer is confusing you, shift the topic. Does Jesus want you to love your life? The answer is yes. No question, hands down, he wants you to love your life so much that you want to live it forever. Because you have it forever. And even as I talk about your life here, notice how when I say your life, we think of just right now until we die. You notice that? If I just talk about your life, you think about on this earth. You don't think about my eternal life. That's not the first thing. That's normal. We're all like that, right? We all have this problem. We're short-sighted. We think it's about now when really it's about forever. And forever is a bunch of thens. Forever is a now that's okay. Forever. And that's really what it means when it says happy is the man whose God is Jesus Christ. Because that man will learn that even though parts of his life don't deserve to be loved, perhaps, God loves him anyway. And as a result, it's our duty to learn to love what he has given us, includes our hands and our our faces and our our bodies, but not so that we can just live in pleasure like that widow who is already dead that Paul mentioned, right? When I say love yourself, I don't mean just go seek pleasure. I mean, realize that God gave you you. God thought you were a good idea. God wants you around for a very very long time. Jesus loves your life. And the lesson of Job then for us today is since Jesus loves your life, he kind of wants you to love it too. It's hard to do, especially when the suffering comes, but a big part of it is knowing what that suffering's about, 
where it comes from and how it, it won't be around forever. Again, Job as a book, I, I said this last night to the five, five o'clock service or four o'clock service, you know, I give maybe a, a 10 minute sermon to them on Saturday nights. And I told him, I said, I'm going to try to talk about Job for a small time to you tonight, but I'm not going to be able to. Now I have 45 minutes. I'll be lucky. So if, if I go too fast again today, if I get excited and shout stuff, I, I'm sorry. I, I love this stuff. And part of the way that I love it is it hangs together in my head. So when, when I go too fast and I stumble on those words and I say, I'm trying to catch the thought, right? It's way out there and I want to get there. Why? Because it inspires me. It makes me want to live, right? I, I really don't like a lot of, I'll be careful how I say this. I got a great family, great life, right? I struggle with like internal problems where I wake up in the morning and like for, I don't know, a long time, I don't like life. I don't want my life. I look at my beautiful wife. She's beautiful. I look at my amazing kids. They're beautiful. And there's a darkness inside of my soul. And it just says, I hate being here. I've had that my whole life. I've never been able to get rid of that. You tell me the secret. I don't think there is a secret. I think it's who I am. And I'm okay with that because I'm learning to love this life for what it is because I know who gave it to me. And again, that's the lesson of Job. Job puts him on, himself on an ash heap and he says, God, why did you do this to me? And really in a very good sense, God's answer is, Job, why not? Why not? And over yet, what do you think you know? And we'll see, Job, Job learns the lesson. He said, I know nothing. <laughs> this is what I know. We're going to start there. Yeah. Uh, Job 42, verses 2 through 6. You find your way there. It's, I believe it's in the, in the bulletin, but it'll be in your pew Bible too. This is Job's final thing he will say. After this entire story, which I haven't reviewed for you yet, I've assumed you know some of what I'm talking about. I'll review it a little bit here. But after this entire story, Job's going to say just a few things, verses 2 through 6, and I want to I zoom in on those. The story in short, Job had it great. God said to Satan, hey, look, doesn't Job have it great? Satan says, of course he has it great. Let me take it away from him, then he'll hate you. God says, go for it. He takes it away. Job doesn't hate God. Satan says, well, you haven't heard his body yet, skin for skin and all that. And so God gives him his body. His body's covered with sores. He ends up on an ash heap. He's unhappy in his entire, like, his entire life in one day. His family his dies, 10 kids die. He has all his fields, like thousands of cattle and, and, and sheep and camels all gone. Like fire out of heaven. Like stuff you just can't even imagine happening. So he sits on a pile of ash and dust and he mourns. Why? And he has these three friends who come to them, three powerful acquaintances, three men who, who know him well. And I'm sure you know his three friends and him, they don't agree. You've heard that from Sunday school somewhere, right? There's an argument between them. And you probably know his three friends are wrong and Job is, is right. Now, the trick will be if you ever read it, <laughs> you're going to get into like the first thing. Is it, is it Zophar that comes first? Whichever one of them comes up first, he starts talking, Job, this is what's going on. You'll get to the end of that and you'll be like, wow, he was right. Or at least you'll be like, isn't this guy supposed to say something wrong? But he, he doesn't seem to. Notice the next guy, but Job argues back. So it, it can get tough if you go into this looking for Job's friends and Job to have a different view of how the world works. 
Because Job keeps saying, I have evil coming to me. And they keep saying, it's because you're evil. And he keeps saying, I know evil comes upon the wicked, but I'm not as wicked as you think. And they keep saying, yes, you are. And back and forth they go until finally another guy named Elihu comes in and he says, I may be just a kid, but maybe you guys don't know what you're talking about. That's about all he says, really. Like, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. And then God shows up in a giant whirlwind and he's like, yup, you don't know what you're talking about. And he says that at length and in great diatribe. So Job finally pipes up and says, I won't talk anymore. God's like, you sit there and listen. (laughs) Where do the goats make love? Have you watched them? You go look for that. It's it's a verse. It's in there. Really? Okay. Like, like that's the questions he asked Job. And he says, "I, I will ask you these questions and answer me. So there's a challenge here. Job says, God, why? Just tell me why. If you'll tell me why, then I'll be happy. And God comes along and says, okay, answer me a couple questions and I'll tell you why. And he lays out so many questions that are about the realm of nature and the beauty of the universe and all the things that you wish you could understand, but you don't. And Job says, I don't even know how to talk now. And then God says, let me give you one more. He does it again. He brings the devil into the picture with Leviathan, if you will, or like the Brontosaurus with Bahamut. I don't know. He talks about these massive mysteries that are still argued about today. And then we get Job's final words. Chapter 42, verses 2 through 6. And this is the summary point of the book. Huh? Let, me, let me mention one more thing. One more thing. I, I mentioned it, but I don't, I don't want to miss it. Job does something that everybody thinks is normal in the story at the start, which is that after everybody dies, after everything falls apart, after his body's falling apart, he goes and sits on a pile of dust and ash as a sign of his repentance and as a sign of his statement to God that he doesn't understand and wants it fixed, right? That is wrong. And once he's saying something's wrong, okay? And what I'm going to try to tell you at the end of this section here, the whole point of the book is that was his mistake. If there is a mistake Joe makes, is getting on the dust pile and saying, why? And he's going to change his answer here at the end, okay? I'm going to give it to you. He starts by saying, verse 2, I know that you can do everything, and it's easy to go past that. Don't go past that. When I say the word God, the way that word in English has been neutered, turned into kind of a pet idea, or some sort of theory about a thing, right? I believe in God, I don't believe in God. Let's argue about it as if he's not listening. That the almighty God, the one, the only, a single God made everything and can do anything he wants. We saw that, we saw a sun dog out there this morning, a rainbow in the sun on a snowy day over St. Paul Lutheran Church. What do you know? I wouldn't have thought it. I didn't know what a sun dog was until today. But... (laughs) Look what God can do when he feels like it. And that's with nature. What about when he wants to just do something different? Huh? Take and eat, this is my body. Take and eat, this is my blood. Take and drink, this is my blood, right? Can God do everything? Yes, he can do everything, anything. And no purpose of his can be withheld from him, right? So whatever his plan is, is going to be seen through. Now let's jump ahead to some New Testament hope here. Please understand then, whatever plan God has is a plan to save you from sin, death, and the devil. That is the only plan God has. That is his singular plan, his singular purpose that he can do, will do, and chooses to do. 
That is indeed what he's doing to Job at this moment. And Job's like, I get it. (laughs) I will stop trying to save myself and see that you are the one who makes the choice. And now verse three, he's going to confess he's been accused of something. He's going to own his, his fault here, right? He says, God, you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Again, Job says, so God, you said to me that I'm talking, but my words are stupid. (laughs) That I'm trying to say things that are right, but I have no knowledge at all. And I sound like a child, right? That's what you said to me, God, rest of the verse. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. You see that? God says, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Job says, amen. He just owns it. He doesn't try to argue. He doesn't try to say anymore, except for he will say, I was wrong to even complain. That's verse four, five, and six. Uh, Four is the setup. Listen, please, and let me speak to you. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I love this. I love this. If it's a three-part answer, right? Three-part answer is, God, I know that you can do anything. God, uh, I know that I don't know what I'm talking about. But you did say if I listened to you, I could say something back. So here it is. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in, of, with, around, dust, and ashes. And that little little word in, the whole book. It's kind of sad to me. We're going to New King James and it's right there. It says in, and it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. Uh, the word in shows up earlier when he's putting it on his head and stuff like that, right? This is more concerning or about. It would make sense if you didn't think that Job was repenting. You would think he's just talking about what he already did. But let me see if I can set up how weird this is. Book starts, bad thing happened. Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Arguments, God comes. God says things. Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Book's over. There's no change in the character. Nobody reads a story where the character doesn't grow. No one writes it. The hero has to do something. So what changes? And it's there in the Hebrew that he says, I repent of. I repent of dust and ashes. Now, maybe you see it. I'm going to tie it together more, but I'll give you a second to see if you can see it on your own. The issue is that Job thought all the stuff that happened to him was bad. And he has to repent of thinking God did a bad thing. I will not put on dust on my head for the good thing that God did to me, which at this moment meant killing my 10 kids and driving off my flocks. It's a pretty hard thing to believe. I'm not saying I'm better than Job. (laughs) I'm just saying he learned the lesson and it's here for us to learn which is that rather than woe is me, poor me, which is the native thing. We do this natively. There's an external word that you can memorize and learn to believe, which is he has a good reason. He's almighty God. He knows all things and no purposes are withheld from him. And his design to save me from sin, death, and the devil. Therefore, whatever it is that just happened, whatever it is that just happened, it must be for the good because he's risen. Hallelujah, right? That's the lesson here. Okay, so again, 
I abhor what I have done and repent of the dust and the ashes. And then what happens next? I, I don't know how to talk about this. There is, there is a blight in American Christianity these days. And it goes something like this. If you go to church, you'll get rich. Or if you go to church, you'll have better health. Or if you just pray to God, you'll get whatever you ask for. And it's easy to hear people say that even when they don't mean to. The prosperity gospel is what it's called. And the sad thing is there's texts in the Bible that are very clear, ask and you shall receive. But then you have liars whose consciences are seared who want to make money and they go out to a building like this and they promise all of you, if you just put more money in the plate, more money will come in your houses. And while for a good 30% of you, that won't be true, you'll all drift off while the rest of the people keep giving. And I can build a big building and take a nice salary off the top of the entire thing. That is not Christianity. That is not the church. That is mammon loving, seeking evil in this world. And many, many, many congregations, that's all they're doing. Or there's a remnant of Christians in there and they don't know what they're doing as they walk to and fro and can't figure out why the structure's falling apart and can't figure out why the people come and go. They have no root. They have no anchor because they think the prosperity of this life is how you know God is happy with you. And I don't want anything I say to ever lead you down that horrible, horrible, dark and lonely path. I want you to be able to be thrown into a prison cell and know God did that on purpose for the good. And that you can stand there certain that it will glorify you in this life and the life of the world to come. I want that to be the way we think of prosperity. It isn't so much that I'm going to get what I want. It's that whatever God gives me is going to be good. And if I learn to want it, it's going to be great. Even the suffering. Even being crucified on a cross for the joy set before him. He endured that glory. So again, how do I talk about the fact that Job repents of his blaming God and his friends for everything else. And what happens next in the story is pretty clear. Everything turns out a-okay. Better than a-okay. Everything's better than better. It's better than it was before. It's so much better than it was before that some commentators don't think it's true because they think it's impossible not only for a man to have that many kids again, but that he'd even be happy. He'd be so upset about losing the other ones, which is an interesting comment. You ask me about that one, I'll tell you about it. But, but what happens in his repentance is he is blessed with happiness. And that happiness, while still in this veil of tears, 140 years, kids to the fourth generation, and you better believe they still talked back. You better believe they still had to go and find the food and cook it. Had to wash the dishes, had to poop outside without running water, right? All of that was still there for his life. So it wasn't as though 140 years, it was just picture perfection. But the things that matter, God always gave. Tell a little parable here. I am um, sort of a parable. I, I had a conversation with a young man, not a Christian, uh, this week. And he, he mentioned to me that he really likes his girlfriend. 
and kind of wants to marry her, maybe. You know, he, he's like 21. He's not a Christian. So he's like, is that weird? Like, I'm not kidding. He actually asked me if it was weird, right? And I was like, dude, you're so normal. You're the most normal young man I've ever seen. You're 21. You think she's pretty. You want to get married, have some kids. That is so normal. Now, no one else thinks that normal because no one builds on things that last. We're building on dreams and ideologies and pretending. And so, of course, it's falling apart. But normal, the principles which endure, the things that are always here, marriage, given in marriage, kids and generations, we can be certain that unless the sun doesn't rise, those things are going to keep going on too. And that's where you will be blessed when you walk into the normal that God gives you. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not lie, right? Have a neighbor, share your stuff, get married and love it, tell the truth. Who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want that? And God promises to give that. When Jesus heals these blind men, I'm gonna jump to the gospel text for just a moment. It goes by a bit fast. There was a lot of healing that went on there, right? There's a dead girl. There's some blind men. There's a mute demon-possessed guy. And then there's every sickness and every disease among the people. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are calling him demon-possessed, and he's trying to send out laborers into the harvest field. I mean, that's a chunky text right there. Lots going on. In the middle of it, when these blind men who hear that he's raised a dead girl come to him and say... Heal us, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus asked them, this is in verse 29, excuse me, verse 28. Do you believe I'm able to do this? I think that's a pretty pointed question. I don't think, I mean, does Jesus not know, right? right? But, but Jesus knows that the real issue is like, do you guys know what you're asking? And I don't think as modern people, as modern Christians, we know what these blind men were asking. So let me lay it out. Almost every miracle that Jesus ever does has a similar version in the Old Testament. And does he ascend into heaven? Uh, guess what? Somebody in the Old Testament ascends into heaven. Huh? Um, does he raise a dead girl? Guess what? Someone in the Old Testament raises a dead girl. Look at that. Like, he just comes along and every prophet that did something, he does all of it. No one's ever, ever healed a blind man. And let me suggest to you that this is because it's hard to fake. Because if you want to be like a charlatan healer and go out there and like trick people into your snake oil healing, right? Like somebody can come, like, like who, who, Austin, will you pretend to be dead for a minute? Like fall over dead. I'll come heal you. You get up and we'll tell everyone God did it, right? And then they can put money in the plate, right? But you all know Austin, right? Now, if Austin was blind his whole life and now that changed, now, do you see how that's a different thing? That's really a different thing. Granted, raising the dead is probably tougher in the actual miracle department, right? But in terms of Old Testament revelations, no one's done it. And they say, do you, and he says, do you think I can do this? And they're like, yes. And what we are to take from this right now is the next thing he says, according to your faith, let it be. According to your faith, let it be. Ask and you shall receive. This is not a promise that you will have millions of dollars and a pony. There's a promise that when you trust Jesus, he will give you everything your heart actually wants. The things that will destroy you, the things that will turn you in on yourself, the things that will destroy those around you, he won't give you those things unless he's angry with you and wants to show you how dangerous those things are. But what he will give you is insight 
into the needs of those who are around you, the value of the lives of others who are beside you, especially if they're weaker, smaller, dumber. And I'm not talking just about here in the pew. I mean, have you noticed Rockford, everyone? Have you noticed Rockford? I saw a shirt at the post office. I don't think I can tell you what the shirt said. I can tell you what it said. I can't tell you what it means. The, the, the shirt just said, is a guy standing in line at the post office, big line, you know, someone's up front yelling, somebody's out there talking to themselves and all this stuff. And this guy's standing there and his shirt just says, Rockford, AF. I'll let you do the math, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my goodness, he's right. And as a pastor, I'm like, these poor people, like a sheep without a shepherd, just being pushed by every message coming everywhere. Do this, don't do that, go get healed, buy some more of this, do this. As you believe, so you will receive. The simplicity of our faith is that all of those people's lives, everyone who's not here today, out there driving by, right, staying home, watching games, their lives will be improved by trust in Jesus to the level that the trust in Jesus seeks it. As you believe, so let it be done to you. Now, because we're Lutherans, I know a lot of you have this conscience inside of you where I'm like, as you believe, so let it be done to you. And you start accusing yourself right away. I don't believe enough. I'll never believe enough. Stop, 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 stop. stop. It's grace, it's grace. You believe enough. That's not what I'm getting at. Okay, I'm not talking about how you need to earn more of Jesus. I'm saying that the gift he gives is trust. That's actually the gift, is trust. So that even if you're on the ash heap, it's, it's actually okay because you know he's got another plan. According to your faith, let it be to you. Ask for what you think you really need. And if you're like, yeah, I've been sitting here thinking about it for days. No, 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 no. I mean like, like get on your knees, close your eyes, say the name of Jesus out loud and ask. I know you know how hard that is. I know you don't do it as often as you should. And I know that because I'm the same way. But we don't have to stay that way as a people. I think the times need us. I'll just point out that this is the gospel of the kingdom as he talks about it in that same text. And the little irony when he says to the blind men, I just mentioned, you, know, you can't hide healing a blind man. <laughs> and he's like, don't let anyone know. Like, how, They can see. They're going to walk out the door. Everyone's going to know. And that's just an aside for fun. Jesus pulls legs sometimes. Back to chapter 42 now. So not healing the blind, opening our hearts and minds to see him, not necessarily giving us Job's life, all the money, all the riches, but, but this is here to be the picture of the life God wants you to love. You don't want 7,000 cattle or camels. That's not what you want. You want something else, right? I mean, I do. So this is here to inspire us to believe that God knows exactly what we want. He knows exactly what we have. And more so, there is nothing you have that if it's taken away, isn't taken away by him and therefore can't be put back. We're almost to the text. I'm going to give you one more piece before we hit it, which is this. Who took it away? Who took it away? The start of the story, have you seen my servant Job? Satan says, let me take it all away. God says, take it all away, Satan. Satan takes it all away. But who took it all away? And then who restores it? Now, let that sit for a second. Here we go to the text. 
All right, so verse seven. So it was, after the Lord Jesus had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, who's the first of his three friends, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Um, a, a note on the Temanite uh, and the other names of these guys. I, I didn't know this before. Uh, I found this just yesterday as I was studying. Um, all but one of the names of these guys as not their first name, but their family lineage, Temanites and Shuite and all this, are trackable. You can find out where their tribes or their families were in Old Testament history. And they predate as starting uh, the uh, the slavery in Egypt. Um, I'm just saying, I'm, my brain is slowing down, so I'm saying it the long way. All these guys are like Esau's extended family two generations down, maybe three, with the exception of Elihu, is, who's from um, Nahor in Tehran. He's actually like Abraham's like third niece and a half or uh, you know, nephew and a half or something like that. He's way down that way. So what is that to say? This is all taking place during the time when Israel is in Egypt in slavery. These are real men who are living in faith in God, inherited from the promises given to Noah, and they're still hanging on to that. And God is accusing three of them of forgetting the religion and needing to come back. And one of them of being a sufficient preacher to bring them back. That's Job, right? All of that's taking place here. The sacrifices themselves, Job standing as an interceder and, and, and an um, uh, intercessor for them. This also points us to Christ. That in the story itself, Job is Christ to his friends right now. As, verse 8, Therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. So you see, Job takes the role of priest here. Uh, this is where I got the idea once upon a time that Job was Melchizedek, which one could still maybe make that argument, but it would be a different timing by about uh, 200 years from what I was just saying a moment ago. Yeah? But here he is put in a place of intercessor like Christ, right? We go to Christ, Christ goes to the Father, and the Father forgives us. The jo friends of Job go to Job, Job goes to the Father, and the Father forgives them. That, that's there for us to see that. Yeah? Also, notice the offerings. Uh, 21, 21 bulls and 21 rams. Ooh, that would be 42 total animals being slaughtered there at the moment as what well, 42 is the number of half of salvation really is what that number is there. It's a number of there's not enough, but the rest is coming. And it says, for I will accept him. Now, he accepts Job's sacrifice, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, that's interesting since Job has said he was wrong a couple of times, Right. Uh, and this is kind of the back and forth here where Job never sins. The, the Bible does say this. He doesn't sin. He doesn't commit heresy. He doesn't forsake God. He's just missing out on the goodness of what he could believe. And there is a difference between rank wickedness and just kind of being ignorant of how good it is. There's a difference there, right? And Job is the one holding to that. Now, also, I mentioned earlier how if you go and you read Job and his friends talking to each other, you might say, what are they saying that's different? So before we go on, let, let me give you the, the key. If you watch 
each of his friends, they say all sorts of stuff about how cause and effect happens. They say this happens and then this happens and this happens and then this happens. But what they never have room for is things that are out of control. They don't have room for things that, that are just simply the wrath of God against all of us. Uh, um, nor do they have room for grace under that wrath. That's maybe the most important thing. The answers that Job's friends give every time is, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And even if that's true, that's not what Christianity says. Christianity says, I love you. Are you okay? Let me help. I mean, think about it again. These three friends come to, to commiserate with him, right? And the problem is they don't, they don't commiserate with him at all. It is blaming. So God doesn't like that. And even though Job isn't really capable of understanding his own errors on his own, he still is waiting on God's answer, whereas they're speaking for God. And that's how they get themselves in trouble. It then tells us that verse 9, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, went and did as Jesus commanded them, for Jesus had accepted Job. That's good. They're, They're Christians. They repent. We'll see them in heaven. And Jesus restored Job's losses. That should probably be a new paragraph. He restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. How interesting. Job doesn't pray for his own stuff and get stuff. He prays for his friends to have stuff and he gets stuff. That's interesting right there, yeah. Um, But also then with that, the double. The Lord restored double, twice as much as he had done before. Um, And this is a thing that comes out of the Mosaic law, which is that a thief if he steals, you break into my house, you take a loaf of bread, you get caught, we go to court. What's the law according to Israelite Moses law? The law is you have to give me two loaves of bread. You took my goat, you give me two goats, right? Whatever it is, you, re- you restore double. That's the punishment for thievery. So God gives what was stolen from Job back. Although it wasn't really stolen from Job by God, God gave it, God took it, and God gave more. When God took it, the devil did steal it. God let that happen so that God could give more, which is, again, part of the lesson. We always want to hold it. We want to get and hold. We want now and me to be forever, forever, rather than let us be given each moment as it comes. We're, We're trying to hold. He's always opening a path before us. As this happens... Getting back twice of all that he had before, his brothers, his sisters, they come, they console him, and they give him the, the gold and the silver. I always thought that was kind of interesting. They give him more silver than gold. Uh, but in any case, you know the value of metals. The one thing I might inspire you with some, some imagination is maybe it's one piece, right? It's like a piece of silver with a ring of gold around it as one beautiful, beautiful coin. Clearly, though, what it is is that he's, he's got plenty. He's being provided for. Those around him love him and want to share. And it lists all the stuff that he gets then, the latter days, more than the beginning. Here's the doubles. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Everything doubled, right? From 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys. And then the same number of sons and daughters that he had before. Um, Just for fun, we have a moment here. Uh, these different types of animals, like, you know, most people didn't have one 
of each of these animals. So he was pretty wealthy, <laughs> like before this whole gets going down. You think about camels, 6,000 camels. Camels are like the war tool, right? If you're poor, you buy your Honda Civic. That's the donkey, right? And you want to buy your Lamborghini, that's the camel, right? It's bigger, it goes further, it can carry more, and you can fight from it a lot easier. Um, so camels are a big deal. Uh, all these sheep, these are clean animals. This is food. This is clothing. This is sacrifices. He's been given more than he can possibly need, right? Oxen for tilling the soil and the donkeys again for, for pack animals and baggage and whatnot. And then seven sons and daughters. So hold on, I'm back up. All these numbers are so fun. We started with 7,000 sheep, seven times 10. Seven is the number of cleanness and holiness. 10 is completion. Now he's got 14,000, double the number of holiness and completion. We started with 3,000 camels. Three is just kind of the number of functionality. It's the number of God, but it's the triangle. It's, it's something that holds together, right? And jumping up to six, six is the number of man. Because it's the number of man, it can be a bad thing, but doubling three, it's a good thing, right? You go from a diamond or from a triangle to a square. You go to stability. Six is a number that has roots in it. And man, again, is, is established as six. Uh, and then the, the 500 to the 1000s, this is again completion. I mentioned those numbers. I don't know that they're that important. You add them all up, you get 22,000 total versus 11,000 at the beginning. And those are weird numbers in the Bible. Um, 11 is one more than 10 and one less than 12. 10 is the number of God's perfection. 12 is the number of God's government. So you have more than God's perfection and less than God's government in 11. It's just a little bit off. And then 22 is just going to double that. It's just doubling always just doubles. It's, it's more and it can be good, it can be bad. If it's bad, it's bad, right? So, so we're doubling the 11. We're doubling the not quite, not quite, which I would say if, if I'm going to take something from that, it's, it's, a, it's a hat tip at the start. When he has 11,000 things in his fields, you know something's going to go wrong, actually. It's, it's a foreshadowing that is not right. And now he gets it all back and he's got double, but guess what? It's still not right. I mean, what's going to happen to Job in 140 years? He's going to die. All those kids and grandkids and great-grandkids around, you think they want him dead more now than it would have been 20 years prior? No. It's still the same planet. It's still the same curse. I think that maybe is there in that 22,000, that 11,000 a little bit. But now these numbers in verse 13 are very exciting. That he has seven sons and three daughters which was the blessing he had before. 10, the number of completion. Seven, the number of holiness. Three, the number of stability, right? And he has all of that in one big reality restored to him. And now I'll hat tip Titus. Thank you for the research on this this morning for me. He, he, it doesn't talk about the boys. I don't think as Americans, we can even begin to understand how upside down, backwards and weird this is. It must mean something very profound, uh, which is that simply these, these girls were amazing. They were as good as sons. How do I mean that? Well, they had to be wise in the faith their father had. That had to be what it was. It couldn't be anything but that. He gives them these amazing names that do kind of say this as well. Uh, he names the first one, uh, Jemiah, which is a Hebrew way of saying day by day. She's his firstborn daughter after all this pain and travail, and he gets her knee. Yeah, another day. 
day by day, this beautiful one. Um, the kezia means, uh, it's literally kasia, kasia, kasia. It's a spice. You, you can smell it. It's a very beautiful spice. So now he's getting the spice of life coming, right? Day by day, it's getting better. Uh, and then the third one, who I would never name my daughter Karen Hapuk. I, 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 right, girls? Like, you didn't want that, right? Karen Hapuk? <laughs> um, it's, it's a double word. It, it means horn of antimony. Antimony is a, is a very elegant type of jewelry or, or bone. Is it bone or stone? I, don't know, I think it's bone. Um, in any case, the idea here is this horn is going to be this giant, expensive, laden, beautiful piece of art that is like a triumph. Like we killed this big, think of what you put your, your antlers on the wall, right? Kind of like that, only more old school with some gems and stuff built into it, and that's her name. Okay. So can you see the escalation of prosperity in their names? And notice how the prosperity is them, not what they have, the, the life. Right? And so much so that they are, they're like New Testament Christians brought into the inheritance. This is such a beautiful foreshadowing of the way it is for us. Inheritance from man to man, father to son, father to sons only, is based upon nature. It's based upon survival on this planet before electricity and gunpowder made some things a little bit easier for a time. But once upon a time, it was hard to like live, have kids and have them live. It was hard. And it was so hard in part or because people would just take from each other. And so if you're a woman walking by yourself down the street and there's a man and he wants to take from you, well, then he will. Unless there's a reason for him not to. And in America, we have police, right? But in the ancient world, they didn't at all, like not even one, right? And so the idea of inheritance, father, son, is mainly about having the biggest animal have the tools to protect the herd. That's really the idea. And I will admit that the modern world has revealed a great number of errors in this, you know, direct lineage of kings doesn't work out so good, this kind of stuff. Fine, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the natural reality of how powerful, how powerful marriage is and family is to us to hold us together as a people. And that in Christ now, the inheritance we received in him sets us all free as sons of God. So hear how the adoption that Christ has of you, man and woman alike, is like Job's treatment of his children, that we are all inheritors. We all get a place in what is to come. And what is to come is not even what is to come, but the spirit inside of you today. That's what these three girls are here to show us. It's not that the boys didn't have anything good. It was all good. Everyone's alive. One hundred and forty years saw his children, grandchildren, died full of days. Some days, I think, you know what? When I die, it's gonna feel good because I can finally let go of the darkness that's inside of me. Other days, I think, I'd really love to see my great grandkids. I'd love to sit by the the lake with the sun and 
talk about how the days used to be so scary and how good days have come. I like that idea too. What shall I choose? <laughs> Who am I? Right? I repent. I repent of believing it's up to me. I'm going to ask you to join me today. Jesus loves your life. He loves it. He made it for you. He wants you to love it too. That's the good news of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.